0: Hello everyone and welcome to this month's Marxism translated podcast. I hope you're doing well. This podcast is a discussion with the historian Mike Tabor who has edited and prepared a number of books related to the history of revolutionary and working-class movements from collections of documents of the communist international and the Lenin which he's been working on since 1983 through to today uh, to works by James P. Cannon, Leon Trotsky, Malcolm X, Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, Morris Bishop and Nelson Mandela. As you'll soon discover, Mike and I take quite a deep dive into the history of the Second International, uh, the organizations in and around the international that was set up in 1889 and ran through to 1914. We cover a lot of ground in this one hour, 45 uh, minute podcast. So uh, sit back, relax and enjoy. If you have any questions or feedback for us, then please do get in touch. And if you would h- like to help support this podcast and to get early access to it, then please consider becoming a patron at Patreon.com forward slash Marxism Translated. Enough for now. Enjoy the show. Okay, Mike. So, welcome to the Marxism Translated uh, podcast. Great to have you here. Um, maybe we're obviously we're covering a huge topic today, and you've been working on this for some time. Uh, we're covering a kind of. 25 years-ish of, uh, of workers' history across various countries with various implications. Uh, maybe we could start by just maybe you could provide a, a kind of quick overview of um, what the Second International was and how you came to study it uh, and, and just provide a kind of generic idea of, of, of what the what this period of history is about. Um, well,
1: I c- actually came to the Second International via the Third International. Communist international yeah uh, since 1983 I've worked on a project together with John Riddell to publish the works of the common Turn under Lenin um, it's the the project has it's aimed to present the common turn in its own words and at this point it's included the uh, proceedings and resolutions of the first four congresses and a number of other volumes uh, and it's ongoing. Uh, in the course of working on these books, I would often come across references to Second International documents that had to be researched. At one point, I started to look, well, where the its, uh, Second International resolutions could be found? Where were they all published? And I discovered that there was no such place that had uh, never been done in English. Um, they, you know, all the resolutions had to be tracked down and located. And so I began thinking it would be a real service to put all these things, all of these resolutions together in a book to make them accessible to uh, to, researchers and activists. And that was the origin of the idea for Under the Socialist Banner, simply for the uh, historical record. Uh, But as I started to assemble resolutions, I quickly realized that the material also had enormous value in terms of its um, Political content and its uh, and its relevance for today, um, you know, I, I think the uh, the the record and the legacy of the Second International are are definitely of value for activists and militants today, both both the positive and the negative ones. Um, I've t- I've termed this a uh, conflicted legacy. That is, it uh, there's various it's actually a battle over where, um, you know, how the Second International is viewed. And I think it's important that it, uh, I, I think the best of, of the Second International from 1889 to 1912 legitimately belongs to, to revolutionary socialists and shouldn't be ceded to those who, uh, who trampled on the legacy uh, mm-hmm.
0: uh, for, you know, many decades, actually for a century. More. Yeah. And in in terms, of, so this this conflicted legacy, I suppose, would you would you argue that the, the legacy of the Second International we've inherited this conflicted le- legacy kind of accounts for the fact that these have been these documents have been buried for so long to all intents and purposes is that is that probably the best way of accounting for it? Do you think?
1: Well, I, I think that there's, um, I, I think the answer is yes, but it comes from two sides, I think. On, on the one side, those who sort of inherited the mantle of the Second International? That is the so you know social, what the social democrats of today in the last mm-hmm. century, you know who have been in government and you know in Britain and Germany and you know many other countries in in Europe. Uh, the last thing in the world they're interested they would interested in is to be reminded of the, you know the revolutionary history that they, yeah. they came from. Um, so, but on the other side, there's you know those those of us who have come from you know from the left wing side, the who have um, you know the, the Lenin tradition, the you know the uh, communist tradition, yeah. who have basically uh, thought that this was simply a uh, after the betrayal of 1914, there was really nothing to uh, uh, to be gotten from it, and so. Yeah have any real interest in and in paying much attention to it.
0: That, that, and that's a paradox I, th- I think we'll we'll discuss later in terms of Lenin, Leninism, Bolshevism, the Second International. I think we'll, we'll, we'll explore that uh, slightly later on, hopefully in the discussion. In terms of the Second International itself, you're looking at the period 1889, 1912, so the founding in Paris in 1889 through to 1912 in terms of the resolutions the de facto dissolution of the body in 1914 when against the wisdom resolutions and principles of, that had been passed up until then in the second international the socialist parties most socialist parties uh, go along with their governments in supporting the first world war right that's the collapse so that's that's the kind of the 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 the, the period we're looking at here uh, in terms of the international itself uh, what would you say were kind of the most important bodies institutions parties kind of can you give us a feel of how it kind of worked and how it was set up since 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 1899 onwards.
1: Well, it was, um, you know, it it included the uh, it was a number, the a number of uh, political parties. The uh, first and foremost, the uh, Social Democratic Party in Germany, the SPD. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, you know, but there were parties that uh, throughout uh, throughout Europe, um, you know, some of them quite you know quite large. it, the, in addition, there were uh, trade unions that, that were affiliated to it and, and participated in its congresses. It was largely a, um, um, uh, although it was largely a European and North American, there, there were a few other, uh, but not, not many. There was yeah, yeah. a, a from Japan, South Africa, There were a, l- a little bit from Latin America and, and other places. But
0: um, no, just just was, to interject, this: sorry, do, do you think that reflected the um, a c- certain theoretical and methodological approaches, or did it f- reflect the fact that really it was mainly in those countries that were represented that had advanced workers' movements, trade unions, etc.? Was there maybe a bit of both? How, how would you maybe account for that?
1: Well, I think the the the, the first thing is that in uh, you know most of the uh, you know countries of uh, Africa, Asia, Latin yeah. America. The, uh, the workers movement was still in a generally, um, you know, um, early stage yeah, without yeah. any or organizations and, and so forth. So, um, but at the same time, it also reflected, there was a general, you know, on the part of the other parties, a general under underestimation of mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, of the political potential, in, you know, in these countries. So it, I think the two things reinforced each other.
0: Yeah. And, yeah. And,
1: uh, you know, and, and uh, well, one of the things that the the Third International actually had to sure, uh, they made progress in overcoming
0: absolutely. Um. So so yeah, you had these these various parties in terms of then how how did it work? So we have the we have the kind of keystone the, the cornerstone com- congresses. Um. What what about other things? What about the ISB and, and, and how did that work? The International Socialist Bureau. How how did these things kind of fit together? How did it run?
1: Well, it was, you know, uh, the first, uh, you know, 11 years of its existence, there there was no executive body, Mm -hmm. the uh, the Second International, it just had, you know, the Congresses every, uh, uh, basically every three or four years. Yeah. Uh, And the uh, International Socialist Bureau was formed in 1900, primarily to... Both as, as a sort of a vehicle for correspondence and for parties to keep in touch with each other, as well as to organize the, uh, the congresses. Um, prior to that, prior to that, the the congresses were basically organized by the party hosting the, uh, yeah. the congresses. So, um, so that's what the uh, you know, the uh, International Socialist Bureau did. It, I mean, it, it also met and. and adopted resolutions, and so forth, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, some of which are you know, quite, some of which are interesting to go over.
0: And then in terms of those, so if, if we just take from 1900 on for now, just as an example, in terms of the resolutions and the, the decisions that that body made, um, as far as I understand it and the way you explain this is that they were not binding on the, the national parties, were they? But they were kind of uh, seen as a kind of setting a standard, if you like, or, or, or marking a certain uh, um, approach, I suppose, that the party should follow. Is that, is that a fair kind of a summary of what the, the ISB did and how it worked? I mean, it has been dismissed by, you know, the, the famous postal box uh, a metaphor by Zinoviev, et cetera. Um, how, how do you think, how, how did it work? So it gets together, it passes these resolutions. How do they, do they, are they then kind of, do the representatives then return to the parties and say, okay, this has been agreed, we need to implement this, or how, how you know, just give a flavor of how that worked.
1: Well, it mainly had, a. it was a moral, um, uh, it had moral authority, mm-hmm. uh, which, um I mean, one thing is the Second International of this period came to be, uh, in addition just to, to, to being an actual organization of parties, it, it had a, uh, a standing of sorts as a world parliament of the working class movement.
0: Right, right. Um,
1: so it, it, you know, every, nobody, um, so everybody looked to it and it had this, this gigantic moral authority. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of one of the things that the um, the ISB did, you know, in this period was to really work to uh, to to bring about unifications of parties affiliated to the Second International. They were successful, and uh, the biggest success, of course, was in France, where they where there were uh, you know, uh, well, at certain, a number of parties eventually two, which they were they successfully. Uh, um, unified and less successful in Britain and in Russia, but yeah. but nevertheless that um, uh, you know that was one of its uh, you know one of its uh, role, role and even though even though you know I, I think Zinoviev's description of the postal box or mailbox was um, was exaggerated was certainly exaggerated and I I would say it's a bit unfair yeah yeah. Um, but you know there was there was one element uh, in the sense that that um, you know because there you know there was you know a, a lot of collaboration between parties and so forth, but a lot of it was on the party to party level, not mm-hmm. not done through the uh, the mechanism of the ISB.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's that's interesting about how these things uh, fit together and how they work. The question of, of of moral authority. I mean, I did read. It's it's interesting subsequently how it's gone down in history because you talk about is the, the 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 world parliament of the working class. I mean, I think, remember once reading in Kevin Callahan's book how it could be seen as a precursor to the United Nations, which I definitely distance myself from an, as an idea. But it's it, this kind of international body that's you know, got this authority amongst the, the workers. And it's very interesting that. It, you know, in, in a sense, the um a, a lot of the progress that's made is cut does come from this moral authority. You have parties that are struggling with the day to day issues uh, that they're facing. Also, as you say, disunity uh, and issues and of splits and everything. And and you know the the, the ISB or the, the the international, broadly speaking, plays a direct role in that. One of the paradoxes, as well as you pointed out, I think yourself a while ago, but in something I read by you, is that the Many so many on on the far left see a problem of the of the second international that that precisely it lacked this uh, uh, coherent uh, uh, body you know executive body for such a long time, but as you pointed out I think it was actually. Uh, engels himself who in a sense prevented that body coming into being right so so it, it, it as a way of uh, of at that time i suppose a kind of tactical judgment of the uh the threat of reformism particularly in france as he saw it the possibilists at the time uh taking over the uh, uh the international and having too much authority could you go into that a little bit because that's a that's a very strange outcome of history isn't it in, in a sense right
1: well it's um yeah. You know, back in the, the first international, you know, of the 1860s and 1870s that Marx and Engels had yeah. had led um, was was largely structured around the General Council in London, um, which functioned as a real executive body with executive yeah. authority and carrying things out
0: between congresses, right?
1: Between yeah. congresses and that you know would meet on a regular basis and you know it was quite it was quite effective and yeah. it was. Yeah. Um, actually the, the especially there was a, a, a leadership you know it was led by Marx and Engels within the uh, within the general council and that was actually what gave it its strength is that to, to keep it um, you know keep it functioning and keeping it effective and of course at that time there was um, there were no real working class parties in the world and the one in Germany was starting to you know was certainly uh, starting to come together you know by and Babel and Lene um, but elsewhere there was you know other just working class organizations when the second international was founded in 1889 it specifically it did not have an executive body and um, in 1891 you know at the time of the uh, Brussels uh, Congress of the International they which the the, uh, the Belgian workers party was responsible for organizing. Uh, I apparently they had raised the, you know, creating a, such a, you know, a, a version of the general Council, and in a number, a number of several letters that angles wrote, um, he, he explained the danger of that and why he was so much opposed to it based on that, the fear that the, the, uh, the ref, the reformist character of the, the Belgian party or the forces within the Belgian party yeah. to, to take control over the uh, the movement and you know I, I think his uh, justifications were certainly uh, you know his arguments were certainly uh,
0: you know, uh, compelling yeah yeah
1: but by in, in 1896 the uh, the the uh, National at the London Congress they adopted a resolution calling for the creation of the executive body, and it was uh, formed in you know at the following congress in nineteen, you know, after the fall of Congress in nineteen
0: hundred. Yeah, do you th- do you think that then? I mean, this relates to because there's, there's whole, these whole issues about you know s- central authority uh, and binding authority versus moral authority, nationalism, internationalism, you know, uh, horizontal relations between parties. All of these questions come up, right? Because. Often, and maybe this is a problem. Often, the way that the Second International is, is viewed is very much through through the lens of the German Party, which was the dominant party, you know, in 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 the organization. Do you think that Engels at the time, so it was it was Belgium that was a key thing, not France that was uh, where I was wrong. Do, do you think that Engels is, is in many ways at that point trying to uh, ensure, I suppose, that it's the it's the kind of German way, the German model that it, it, that filters through eventually. So he's biding his time to make sure that actually the German party model is dominant or even the German party is dominant for the time being to offset the, the, the danger of it becoming, uh, running away. Because in, in a sense, I think the one one way you could present the Second International slightly schematically is, okay, you have, as you say, particularly the rise of the German party in, in the 1880s, early, early 1890s. Um, and th- it's that model, which is attempted to be imposed then on the other's Internationally, through moral authority, etc. Would would that be a fair uh, overview? Do you think? And is is that does that partly account for Engels' role?
1: Well, I think so. the uh, The SPD was Engels' party. I mean, he. Exactly, um, yeah. I mean it. I mean, he was critical on on many things, and you know, but but he he presented his ideas regularly uh, through to the leadership of the party, and he viewed that as the. Uh, almost the guarantee of stability of, for the Second International. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I should mention, since we're talking about Engels, that, um, you know, this was one of the things that um, when I started, uh, when I was going through this stuff, that, that, that was one of the biggest revelations to me, is the role of Engels and the, both in the creation of the Second International in 1889 and in the six subsequent years, Engels—you know—he died in 1895. Yeah. But he, you know, he was he was regularly one of its, uh, you know, uh, I mean, he was the most authoritative figure in international socialism, and uh, you know, he he played an important advisory role. It's, um, you know, and it's one of the things that, in, you know, the tendency to sort of um, disregard. The second international, I think, on the part of many you know, left-wing socialists,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. You know, is, you know, it runs square against, you know, I mean, of the, uh, you know, of the role of Engels, the important role that Engels played in it, and his judgments about, I mean, he didn't, uh, he didn't, uh, not in every resolution, he wasn't at, I mean, he he attended the closing session of the Congress in 1893. But you know, he didn't participate in any of the other congresses. But you know, he was a, a guiding figure behind the uh, the whole thing.
0: No, absolutely. I, I think the eighteen ninety three gave the closing speech, didn't he? And he said he couldn't attend properly because he was working on capital on the capital manuscripts. But I think you're absolutely right. I think that's this is one of these many paradoxes when we go back to the Second International and, and our understanding of it, because I think it's that kind of classic historical sin. I think that we're all we all tend to uh, uh, have a tendency to to make is that you know we look at something, uh, we look at the outcome of something, and we look, we look at the way it ended up and then have a tendency to project backwards from that particular uh, um, uh, prejudices or, or judgments based on that. And it as you know, one of the things that, uh, one of the many good things that you're pulling out in your work is that, you know, these things are not as simple as that. So, you know, we talk about, you know, you talk about the conflicted legacy today, but right from the very start, you know, I should have mentioned as well, it's, there's actually not one founding, con- I mean, the founding Congress of the Marxist International in Paris is, is, is one Congress, but there's a competing, possibly con- uh, Congress, which isn't a success, etc right at the time so right from the, the get-go there's the there's you know this th- there's a conflicted uh, uh, understanding of what the international is what it should be what its role should be what politics it should raise etc et etc cetera, et cetera. and it seems to me that the the early success uh, and maybe that has lessons for today we can maybe come out to that later but the the early success of the international and its rapid growth, is to to a large extent premised on the the German model, the German methods, and Engels, as you say, Engels is part, part party was the SPD. He played also a role in the uh, the, the coming together of that force. You know, historically a, a long time, um, and I, I think that's that, that's incredibly port, important to uh, to pull out. Um, just so you know, you spoke about your journey about working on the Communist International resolutions um when when pull it, when you started to pull the the materials together for this book under the socialist banner uh, the resolutions of the second international um I, I think you've partly alluded to this but did you come across anything that really surprised you when you talk about engels and how your kind of reappreciation of the second international via engels was there anything that really stood out to you and made you think oh wow we really have lost something here
1: well you know in all also the uh the, the Marxist character of of most of the fundamental resolutions um, mm. the strength of them yeah, um, yeah that that I mean I I mean it's not as if I had actually studied you know really studied this stuff you know years ago but when I but that's it, looking at them together um, uh, that was a um, that was an eye opener
0: yeah certainly. yeah.
1: Um, you know, and in, in also in, in the sense of seeing the, the relevancy of, of this material for today at a, at a time when there's, you know, there's, you know, at least, at least certainly in the United States, there's many thousands of people who are looking at socialism for the, uh, you know, for the first time and, you know, without knowing anything about, or not much about the history are, you know, starting to you know, sort of need to know about where the, the movement came from and what its uh, foundations are, and particularly when so many of the the, the questions are current today. The uh, you know uh, that dealt with whether it's the relations with with bourgeois parties, the role of uh, you know you know various questions on, uh whether it's militarism, colonialism, immigration, yeah. uh, women you know, women, the, women's suffrage—you yeah, know, women's emancipation—you yeah. know, whatever—it's.
0: Uh there is a there is this, that, that's striking to me as well there is a certain timeless quality isn't there i mean the, the, you know they're, they're very much these resolutions are of their time in terms of you know what they're trying to address specifically and concretely but if you if you edited them slightly and you know maybe swapped a few nations names around or updated the, the you know the political context as you said that there, there, there are there is a striking relevance and i really like the way you put it in one of your recent articles i think in monthly review where you said well you know whether you whether you're new to the far left or not those of us who have been around in the far left for a long time, in various groups or tendencies or factions, whatever, we are all, uh, uh, you know, the, the the family ultimately can be traced back to the Second International. It, sometimes in very complicated roots, but this, you know, this this is our our history, and I think the the point you make about seeding ceding this history or let you know handing it over to you know the the the, the tony blairs the gerhard schroders the you know the, the, the whoever's of the, of this world is, is is a real flaw but unfortunately that is how we that, that's how we've gone about things until until quite quite recently um maybe on 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 that point then um Could you maybe have a uh, a comment a little bit on the state of existing literature on the Second International? Because I mean, we have to I suppose the first thing to say is there's very little that is Marxist inspired about the Second International, generally speaking. But there is there is some writing about the uh, um, on the Second International and and where you think uh, some of the things that you've discovered may kind of uh, uh, help to. Uh, challenge some of the secondary uh, secondary literature's conclusions on this because I know you speak French and German as well, so you've got a wide range of of, of material that you read. Um, maybe some comments on that.
1: Um, w- well, of course there was. I mean, there was quite a bit um, written on the Second International, particularly the '60s, the '70s. Um, yeah. The most authoritative, of course, was uh, George Haupt. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: But, you know, unfortunately. He, he, he died while he, you know, before a lot of his work could be, uh, could be completed, you know, other, you know, important books, James Joel, Brown, mm-hmm. G. H. Cole, Cole, uh, and others, all of those were um, written by um, those not, you know, not, um, I was, I would say opponents of, you know, of the, you know, of the communist movement of, yeah of certainly of the revolutionary wing of the uh uh you know of of, of the the socialist movement workers movement um but at the same time that you know a lot of the the you know important uh you know factual aspects and and different uh parts of this history you know they you know it was an important uh it was an important contribution that they made Mm. but but I would say for you know for a couple of decades after that, there was actually relatively very little that was written on the Second International. Mm. Uh, and, but it's really in recent years, the last ten maybe twenty years, that um, you've seen a number of things in English, you know, books, uh, and you know, continuing today, you know, books. You know, Kevin Callahan, mm-hmm. uh, works by Jean Jeanne Madoukaj. Uh, yourself, Eric Blanc, uh, you yeah, know, and, yeah. and others. Um, not to mention the, uh, the renewed interest in Karl Kowski, which the, which is a related question.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: And something that you've contributed quite a bit too. Sure.
0: Um,
1: and it it relates to um, it's not entirely the same thing as the the uh, the record of the Second International, but on the but it intersects in a in a yeah. lot of different ways and. And the polemical exchanges that it's given, you know, that this the Kowski um, question has given rise to is actually one of the things that I think has um, uh, raised interest uh, in in the in the whole question. So, I, um, it, and it's how it relates to uh, politics today, and yeah. the why we should all be interested we should be interested in this. And,
0: no, I, th- I think that's right. I, I mean, you look at like people like Cole, uh, 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 Cole and Joel in particular, I mean, you know, without without being too schematic, but I, I think th- there was a sense in which th- there was it, that that literature fitted in broadly into, um, you know, Western historical scholarship at the time, which you say uh, was in, attempting in many ways, again, slightly schematically. But if you look at Joel in particular on the Second International, it's this that this is I the, the idea is that Marxism. Um, um, is is quite, you know theoretically interesting and everything, but fundamentally utopian, right? So the, the the second international project itself, to the extent that it was guided by the spirit of Marxism, as you've said, is is fundamentally uh, utopian. So they either then paradoxically they, they write such writers, they tend to give a lot of credit. On the one hand, to the reformist wing, and say, you know, these people actually are trying to solve real problems that Marxism couldn't fail to uh, couldn't uh, possibly uh, answer because it doesn't have a theory of power, etc. And in in some ways, then they, they uh, uh, paradoxically, as I say, they tend to give quite a lot of weight to the left wing criticisms of, <laughs> of 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 Marxism. So this, this is a kind of weird uh, symbiosis I found in in some of the stuff, and I think that that is one of the uh, one of the important contributions that you're you and and as you say that this is part of a, a small upturn in, in in interest I suppose in this period um it is challenging head on this fact that you know a lot of our history which we should see it as you say as our history has been written by people who have tried to undermine that history and trying to trying to undermine those uh those politics right so I think that's uh that that's an important uh, thing to note with you know people like John and Cole um why yeah. so, sorry Mike did you want to come in?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, no, I mean, a lot of the uh, you know the, of the of those writings, they they you know they point to a lot of the strengths of the Second International and yeah. Uh, they, but at the same time, they point to they point out it's it's Marxist character as the as
0: its biggest weakness. Exactly, as its problem. Uh,
1: so right. it's uh, you know it's an interesting. <laughs>
0: That's exactly. And, and and then you have this other approach, I suppose, that we, you know, we, we would be more close to in terms of our uh, past and training and, and education on the left, I suppose, is that, you know, uh, the second international is disavowed by uh, the far left for its supposedly non-Marxist character, right? Uh, and and I suppose it comes back to this idea, I mean, th- th- this uh, there's, there's a famous, uh, we'll, we'll maybe talk about the, the trends and everything later on, but there's this famous article by uh, Lenin where he talks in 1912, I think it is, 1912 or 1910 where he talks about the two worlds of social democracy and you know again it, it, re- it reflects what we've been discussing here because this the, the second international is not least because of its size the history the complexity or the forces involved it's a slightly protean phenomenon because you know we can uh, look back and say well yes it was marxist look at the resolutions look at what they passed etc and when whereas other people will say. Well, no, but that was just in word. Indeed, it was doing other things. And so it's very tricky sometimes to pin down. But I think the, the point that you bring out is that, yes, the spirit of, of Marxism is there in its resolutions, in its leadership, in many of its structures, et cetera. Um, but I think we, as you as you also point out, is that these things were always contested from the get go. So you have this, you know, the two worlds, the the, the uh, forces of reformism that eventually won out. You have to say, I mean, they did win the leadership eventually of that of that movement, right? And uh, and and the left lost. However, you know, I think you would probably share with me this uh, impression that actually, what was The the very best elements of the uh, of the second international, to the extent that they didn't give up from uh, on politics in nineteen fourteen, went on to form, you know, whether whether the strengths and weaknesses, the basis of the third. Right. I mean, is that broadly how you would see it too? Um,
1: Yes, it's uh, the you know, which is why I, I, you know, the 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 point that the uh, the those who founded the communist movement Lenin. Rosa Luxemburg, you know, and others, they, they never renounced the, you know, the re- resolutions of the, of the Second International, including, you know, they, they would actually utilize the, the words of these resolutions to, uh, uh point a finger at the, uh, at the betrayal that had been committed in 1914. So, um, you know, y- yes, it's, uh, you know, even, you know, even though I think there were, there were reasons why the, um, you know, after 1919, the, you know, the, the Third International didn't talk much about this legacy. Um, yeah. I, I think, I think part of it was that, um, you know, at, at that time they were, when what was posed, you know, after 1919 was winning a whole section of the, you know, of the socialist movement to break with the second international entirely and, and you know, uh, uh, abandoned any illusions in the possibility of reforming it. Yeah. And so they, the stress that they put on it was in the other direction on the need for a decisive break. And so they,
0: yeah, yeah. they
1: didn't talk very much in, in the early years. Uh, well, you know, certainly in the first years about, about the positive aspects of, of the, uh, you know, uh, you know, of what, You know, what was there and and how it, how it laid, how some of it laid. A uh, foundation for the Third
0: International. No, I think that's right, and i, I if, if anything, I, sp- I could put it in slightly stronger terms. I mean, it's not just about winning a sections or winning sections of the working class away from social democracy. I mean, it's civil war in some cases. Right? I mean, it's literally yeah. that you know the communists uh, are being attacked or you know physically threatened, or whatever, by by ruling social democratic parties. So it becomes very much a life and death kind of matter, and you can you can see it in the in those t- in those terms. But you know, one of the things that I, I really liked in in, in uh, you know again. A kind of Friend of ours, Lars Lee. His work is, you know, he he, he stresses how um, Lenin, for example, on really weird occasions, like the fifth anniversary of the Russian Revolution. Uh, would be, quote Kautsky from 1909 on the nature of Russian revolution. and, and uh, I think there's also a generational aspect there as well, right? Because, you know, that Lenin has had been through that, you know, the, the second international, Lenin, Lenin sat on the ISB for various uh, various years. Um, and I think for a, long, a lot of the younger, uh, you know, Bolsheviks come into the party, maybe hadn't seen all of that even leading bolsheviks like the ones that joined later on but think look at that and just that this is really weird but i think that you know if you if you look at lenin uh, luxburg Setkin as well you know as you say they they do refer positively depending on the context of course to to the content of the uh, of of the second international i think what we should maybe also focus on here is that you know you were talking here maybe probably about 1919 the early 1920s maybe even slightly later than that but i think what has been shown i forget the guy's name now but the uh the book uh that's been put together by uh david brandenburger david Brandenburger's name uh on uh stalin and stalin's role in this because it very much becomes when you get to the foundations of leninism the the the, 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 the archetypal text of, 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 of Stalin's uh, understanding of Bolshevik history, th- this very clearly expressed that we Bolshevism had nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the Second International. It represents something qualitatively new and different, et cetera, et cetera. And that was, you know, as Brandenburg has shown in the, you know, with, with his comments on on the, the excisions and comments that Stalin made to the party, the, to the draft of that text, it's clearly Stalin himself trying to refashion Bolshevik history as being something unique that stands above everything else. And I think that is something, you know, even those of us critical of Stalin and Stalinism accidentally kind of picked up as baggage. Does that make sense? So it becomes, you know, you get this, you get this gradual movement away from, you know, when, I don't know, when Lenin and, and Zynovia, for example, are writing in Switzerland about the, the legacy of revolutionary social democracy and how important that is, as opposed to opportunist social democracy, uh, through to the, you know, the 30s, the 40s, etc um when there is this very clean break with absolutely nothing to do with the second international right
1: and and they and the elevation of leninism into uh, yeah. you know, a type of religion that's part of any uh, any political foundations
0: or- absolutely I I think, you know, that's that's partly there in the 20s. as Well, then the cult of Lenin starts to come in, I would say, in the mid mid late 20s. But I would say that then it went with Stalin, it becomes something completely new altogether because it's then Stalin refashioning himself as uh, as uh, as Lenin, um, Mm -hmm. but thereby undercutting the, you know, the the basis of it. And, you know, recently uh, uh, an article by uh, Lawrence Parker, you know, if you actually read the young Stalin as well, you know, Stalin is very much as Trotsky was as Lenin was that a lot, lot of these figures they're very much fans of karl kautsky and and, and german social democracy in their youth and so it's not just stalin breaking It's Stalin breaking with himself in a in a strange way as well right so i think that's we have to it, it's as i say it's a very complicated topic the second international when we go back to it because we have whether well, you know whether we've been around the far left for a year or six months or you know 30 40 years there are these these things that we've carried with us which i think sometimes uh uh you know uh provide some kind of prejudice when we approach it right and it's difficult to uh to, to know where to start sometimes um perhaps provocatively on this question and uh, the the question of uh um uh, of upholding the best right upholding the best it's not just upholding the best it's building on the, the best of the second international going forward um Lars Lee talks about um uh, uh, lenin's aggressive uh, unoriginality in 1914 in the response to the second world war because this is idea sorry the first world war this this idea that um uh, that, that's prevalent, that, you know, basically, and again, it comes through uh, uh, Stalin to a certain extent, that the um, Bolshevism went away in reaction to 1914 and had to come up with something completely and fundamentally new. And um, and uh, uh, Lars says, no, actually, what Lenin did, he was very aggressive about it when saying, we need to break with the Second International, but we need to uphold the best of, 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 of that movement and what it stood for. Do you think that the, the Russian Revolution of 1917... Uh, In a way, was a a kind of paradoxical, ironic victory of the ideas, some of the founding ideas of the Second International, or is that maybe going too far?
1: Um, Well, I I, I think that um, you know the 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 basic point that uh, that Lars, you know, has has you know made his his real contribution is um, uh, you know is to. You know, pr- sort of, a provide a, a breath of fresh air on uh, you know these insights. Of, you know, on of, of the connection of Lenin, this, you know, the Second International, um, yeah. the, the, the background. Um, it, you know, it, 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 it's it's not it's not just that you know Lenin and Luxembourg didn't never renounced the uh, the Second International. It's also um, you know, even though Lenin in particular, um, you know. And, and Luxembourg, you know, began to, to see the, the development, you know, the opportunist trend, the danger yeah, yeah. that it posed. Uh, it, it's interesting to note that prior to to August 1914, uh, they they never, either one of them, or I don't know of anybody else who's raised the, the, uh, the need for a, a split
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, with, with these forces. It wasn't until after, you know, you know after 1914 Um, you know, and, you know, and the, the point, you know, the point, actually, I think you would raise this earlier, you you can't, you know, read back in history, you know, with, with Lenin and say how his, uh, um, and and not see how his views were, were certainly influenced by Kowski's writings, and nor can you read forward in history with Kowski and say that he was always a renegade, just uh, waiting to show his true colors. Absolutely. Um, You know, that's not, you know, that's not how, um, history works. Um, although, I, although, I, I, uh, although I should say that Lars, Lars's article on Kautsky as the architect of the October Revolution didn't quite, it didn't entirely convince me, um, uh, you know, even though there's a number of, you know, important points, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I think it's important not to go too far the other way. There was a number of, of, of Lenin's, his writings on the Russian Revolution, on the class forces, uh, uh, and alliances, uh, necessary, the, uh, you know, his, his, his governmental formula on democratic dictatorship, proletarian proletariat and peasantry, which, mm-hmm. which I, I think is, um, in many ways is still under, uh, underappreciated.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: the, uh, but, but, but I think the base, the, the the basic point that you know that uh, Lars makes is correct on, on that is that the that um there the, there certainly wasn't you know an, an influence on a lot of on a lot of questions mm. um, you know although you know I, I think that you know going back to what we were talking about in the previous question mm. um, you know the fact that a- after you know at, at that time Kautsky you know had you know, was was on the other side, and in many ways, in the, the civil war that was taking place within the, uh, you know, a number of of countries, and yeah. nobody, you know, in, in that kind of a situation, nobody wants to talk about the, you know, the positive qualities in the past of somebody. Like, no, I sure. mean, not the time that
0: no, sure, generally
1: to do something like that.
0: No, it's, it's just you know, in terms, slightly more concretely, in terms of the resolutions as well, and maybe we can talk about renegacy and, and issues here because they they do fit together, I suppose. It's a slight tangent, but I think it's an important one. I think the, um, you know, in terms of what you say about Lenin's and um, you know, contribution to the the class alliances, the class forces of the Russian Revolution, the the, the question to, towards uh, participation in government, in many ways, and again, I'm not saying it's all there, but as you pointed out in your in, in your book with the resolutions. The clear approach, say, in 1917 about not joining the government, about consistent opposition, etc., clearly plays out in the Bolshevik's favour five, six months later, doesn't it, right? There, there are certain things that, you know, I think there's, a, there's certainly a framework. It's not that then Lenin's going back to the resolutions and going, OK, what's the answer now concretely for this particular thing? But I think there's a general Common sense, if you like, does, is, is, does it, but to, again, to use a loaded term in, in Marxist theory. But you know, uh, there's a general framework, a strategic framework, which I think can explain the Russian Revolution. Uh, if, to, again, to use Lars's term, if you like, an architecture, a, a structure, right, um, within which then the the, the, the Russian Revolution uh, uh, succeeds. And I think that's something that's, um, you know it, it is important for right, given the history, given the fact that yes, and in, in the Western scholarship. Uh, The the Bolsheviks were portrayed as these kind of uh, barbaric, semi-Asiatic horde of, you know, radicals that had nothing to do with sensible, democratic, Western, right? And then on the other hand, the, the mirror image of that Stalin saying, well, yes, that's absolutely right. We never had anything to do with European social democracy. We were always a Russian uh, you know, again, the Russian nationalist stuff comes in. So I think that's that's important to stress this architecture. But in terms of the renegacy question, I think um, and maybe we could look at this government question because we've talked about this before and we went away. I think we we looked at this together, actually looking at the resolutions on government participation, because I think one of the things in Kautsky is that there's I suppose we have to distinguish between mistakes blunders, concessions, and, uh, you know, betrayals. And I think clearly in 1914, and, the, you know, he doesn't support the war, but he goes along with the, and excuses uh, unity with the warmongers. But could you maybe go uh, take a step back to the the kind of history of the, of the, the one of the, uh, for me, one of the most important resolutions passed is the question of, of on government, sorry, on uh, government participation, because that's got a certain history with Kautsky himself, hasn't it? And his and his uh, ideas.
1: Yeah. Um, well, this relates to the, uh, the whole discussion on Millerandism. You know, we exactly. of course Millerand was the you know the French socialist who entered the, uh, the French cabinet in eighteen ninety seven, um, uh, and you know which gave rise to a you know to, uh, you know a big debate in the uh, you know in the in the socialist movement at the time and. It was at the, um, because, you know, other forces were um, were presenting this, uh, you know, as a way forward. Uh, uh, Jauré in, in France, who would, um, was defending, you know, was defending uh, Millerand at the time. So it was a, at the 1900 Congress, it was a, um, uh, there was a debate on it and, um, Kautsky uh, drafted a resolution that, um, you know, condemned, you know, socialist participation and in, in bourgeois governments, um, you know, you know, pretty clearly. Um, but, but then he, um, um, as a way of not, as sort of as a, an intentional compromise to try to, to, Keep some of some of the you know the the reformist forces, um, you know, within the within the international. He um, wrote a, a clause basically in a, under exceptional circumstances, you know, it, you know this shouldn't be done except under exceptional circumstances, and then and, and under the even even in these exceptional circumstances, it needed you know needed to be carefully uh, monitored, right. et cetera, et yeah, cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, so it was, you know, we clearly meant this as a, it was a compromise measure. Yeah. Um, and that was actually, it was, there was a, a, another resolution in 1900 that was put forward to condemn it under all circumstances. Mm. Um, the, uh, the problem was is that the, the exceptional circumstances clause, then subsequently the, those people who sort of justified Millerandism you know, would simply oh well. There's there's this clause under exceptional circumstances, so the, these parties can, um,
0: yeah,
1: uh, you know, can decide on their own what the exceptional circumstances are. So you know, it left the door open, and and a number of these uh, these forces were trying to drive the the, the would use this opening wedge to uh, uh, to undercut the condemnation of socialist participation in the bourgeois government. So yeah. then, uh, okay, then in, um, so at the subsequent Congress in Amsterdam, the, uh, the, the uh, actually the French uh, uh, workers party, you know, led by uh, Jules Gued, uh, put forward a, a, a resolution that the SPD had uh, approved the, the previous year that had been drafted by Kowski together with August Babel, um, condemning uh, uh, such participation under all circumstances so there was a big debate at the 1904 Congress it basically dominated the the Amsterdam uh, Congress at the time it was you know it, uh, both the commission's and the um, the Congress plenary um, and eventually it, it at the at the conclusion of the um, reported it, it, it adopted the conduct uh, the, cond- the Kowski babel condemnation of Millerandism, but, uh, but it, it would, the vote was almost, was basically split right down the middle. So it, um, it sort of, on one hand, it was a victory for the left-wing forces in the international, but at the same time, it, it, it really showed the development of the, you know, opportunist uh, wing
0: that was emerging. I suppose it it showed, see, again, many people would then look at that and say, okay, so even in 1900, we've got this uh, Kautsky renegade type situation. Was this the problem? And again, I think that's uh, slightly problematic, but clearly. Uh, Klakowski is bending, I and mean, he admits it himself, doesn't he? He says, you know, I, I'm I'm making concessions to the to the Zorazites in France for for the sake of unity, etc. And we'll talk, maybe we can talk about that question more broadly in a second. Unity compromise, because I know that you're working at the moment on a book about the actual discussions and debates surrounding the motions that you've put together, which you know I'm I'm sure will be revealing to you as well in terms of how these how these resolutions were agreed upon and passed, etc. Right. But um, I think in, 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 in this case, we have a situation where Kautsky clearly is making a, uh, a concession to the right. And he even admits it later on. Uh, but it's kind of corrected, isn't it? It, it you know, it, it, for, for what you know, and, and in terms of the, the original motion, I think that the, the exceptional circumstances largely revolved around war. For memory there may be other two but as you say the right will always the, the right even today the right has a tendency to constantly invoke exceptional circumstances to carry out all sorts of measures right i think that's that's a that's a, almost a kind of in the dna of uh, opportunism right uh they, oh but this time it's so different because of this <laughs> right um and i think that um but no, clearly in in that case you, the, the 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 content of the resolution is, is is corrected, and it must be said as well that the the ISKRA editorial board at the time uh, was you know it slammed that resolution. It uh, I, I called it the Kowchuk rubber, the rubbery resolution, right, precisely because of its malleable uh, content, and I think that's imp- important to uh to raise but yeah the what one of the 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 i say one of the the key uh, um resolutions i think is is this whole question of you know the attitude towards uh, bourgeois government and it's one that continue continually plagues the left today i mean the left in ireland now et cetera, you know looking for for a left government etc which is a basically essentially within the frame of of the ca- of capitalism and and you know this this architecture this basic theoretical and strategic structure i think a lot can be taken from uh the second international in, in terms of um, the, the the debates, the resolutions, and how they came about, the need for compromise. You know, when you're talking with uh, you know a body that big with various parties, the factional uh, uh, problems that cut across the, and between the parties as well, right? Um, what what is the role of the comp of compromise in the second international? Do you think there was too much compromise? Um, is there, you know, how did it work? Because again, that's one of the many criticisms, posthumous, posthumous criticisms you hear is that, oh, there was too much com- compromise, uh, things watered down overly uh, too much, et cetera. Uh, there were too many concessions to the right, which eventually uh, uh, wound up as a problem. What, what what would you say? I mean, again, it's a huge topic, right? But maybe some concrete examples of how that played out and what your general impression is now, now that you have not only put the resolutions together, but you're looking at the actual discussions around those resolutions that took place.
1: Um, well, of course, it's, you know, the the question of what, when to compromise and when to not is, you know, is... Uh, you know, it's it's a very concrete question. And yep, uh, yeah. you know that, I mean, there's a lot of times when I know in the Third International at the uh, there, there's a big, you know, I mean, a big debate about the, uh, the compromise that they come at the Cominterns Third Congress in 1921 yeah. between the, uh, you know, the sort of the leftist currents and, you know, the Lenin, the wing that Lenin was uh, was leading
0: yeah um,
1: and you know there any compromise can you know have can wind up having problematic things but it's you know compromises can be necessary so Absolutely. You, and um you can't i mean there are the um and for example Engels made all kinds of uh political compromises on you know he uh, um he, you know he would have, he would decide what the decisive questions were, and um, would put sharply, um, in, insist on his points of views. But on other, other questions, you you go with the flow, or you you do what's necessary as long as things are moving in the right direction. Yeah. So, um, you know, and that was certainly the case with you know, um, you know, the, the socialist movement at the, at the time you know what happened as the as the uh with the growth of the uh you know of the opportunist wing you know in the you know the, the decade before 1914 you know um what was at that point the, the there's really not much you know that in terms of compromise you, you what was posed was not so much compromising with the, with these forces to maintain unity, but, but to, you know, clearly the, the differentiation was okay. more and more important. And, and of course that's what, um, you know, what, uh, Lenin and Luxembourg and others, you know, would try to do Even you know, even though they didn't, it, it's not as if that they were calling for a split with these other, other forces, but, mm. um, they, uh, so uh, and and actually in a lot of the debates the the possibility of compromise uh, there's actually less in some ways there was less co- political compromising on in many of the debates in the, the last few congresses of the second international because there really wasn't room for them
0: as opposed right. to the earlier years of the yeah second that makes century, sense
1: was more room for uh compromise between on on different questions and and resolutions such as uh like such as the resolutions on may day or the general mm-hmm. strike which were are clearly you know they're all compromise <laughs> resolutions yeah yeah uh, to, um, to try to um but you know and certainly as the as the divisions increased that became less and less
0: possible that's a really interesting point i think the um I think the early days, again, the, the, the earlier resolutions and, and controversies would largely be around uh, compromises to the left as well, right? Because there would be criticism, say, for example, on May Day, that the, the SPD leadership was quite keen on having a kind of regimented May Day, organised, structured, not be going beyond, you know, not, not kind of the basis for some kind of big strike or whatever, it'd be quite structured. And so that was probably some kind of compromise with the left as opposed to the right. isn't and, and, and as you say, <laughs> when, that 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 brings home the point that maybe I had not grasped at, at, uh, sufficiently about these two souls, the two worlds of social democracy. Because as things heat up, there isn't this less room to compromise. Obviously, I, I was thinking about in conc- more concretely about the question of women's suffrage. Mm -hmm. um so remember that the uh setkin wins uh, wins over the the women's congress which precedes the 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 second the second international congress of of, of everyone and uh in the plenary i think she then has to concede to Adler uh, of austria victor Adler, on this question so that i was just thinking of of things like that but that's a very good uh, good point that you raise about the you know as time goes on as the factions become entrenched the room for compromise is obviously, you know, but the, the, it's, it's an eliminated to, to all intents and purposes. That's really, really interesting. And um, one of the things I thought would, would be interesting to look at it just occurred to me now as we were speaking, given that the, the, the significance and the import of the second international, um, I wonder if anyone has looked at or would be worth looking at the response of the, the, the bourgeois press to these things as well, because they weren't obviously, these proceedings weren't just reported in the left press. Um, you know, I, I remember just again, just from reading my Lenin, uh, you know, the idea that um, the right wing would would raise certain points at a Congress and be, you know, be confident about winning X resolution and they would have the backing of X newspaper, you know, in in, in Germany or in France or whatever. Um, and it seems to me that one, one of the things that we'll be looking at is, you know, p- precisely how the bourgeois press reacted to, and maybe even tried to influence in a way, the outcome of, of, of the, of the uh, Congresses. Do you think that's potentially something worth looking at? Because this, again, it's such a huge topic, isn't it? That you, it's hard to know sometimes where to draw the lines.
1: Um, well, well, one of the things that I think that um, that, that quest- question really points out is how much the uh, the Capitalist class, the powers that be, uh, really looked at the second looked at the Second International and were um, certainly, and to a a certain point, they were. I mean, this was a threat to them. Uh, This was a threat to their power, and they they saw it. But it 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 had it had grown it had grown so much. Its power, you know, with you know Tens of millions of supporters and uh, people who who were sort of organized in in some way by by it that that in in the same way as the uh, in Germany, the the government, you know, uh, even though it would put restrictions on the SPD, you know, it was forced to to live with it um, because because of its strength. And I think that's the same with the uh, the second international on a world scale. So it did that. To, to see how the uh, how it was um, viewed by by these powers is you know I would I definitely find that of interest.
0: It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because I, I think you and I, we, you know, we we would largely, you know, approaching this material, we would largely do it in the same way. So we'd look at the, the resolutions, we would look at the speeches, we would look at the compromises, we look at the political background, the factional as we, But obviously with the Second International, it, it opens up all sorts of avenues for for research. And I'm just thinking but partly Kevin Callahan's book, Demonstration Culture, which is great. Um, but also, uh, I can't remember the, the, her name, Polakso, I think is the surname, where she looks at the... Um, The Second International is a kind of network. It's based on the kind of history of interpersonal relations and, you know, how these these congresses were not just you know, in the sense that in, in the kind of sense that many of us would understand the Congress today, if you like, it just resolutions, delegates and et cetera, but they would be really cultural events. There would be, you know, if you were a, a Finnish friend of mine, sorry, a Norwegian friend of mine is currently in the archives in Oslo and has found some of the, uh, uh, the, the visitor packs that Norwegian delegates were given to, I can't remember, maybe it was Paris, it might have been Brussels, I can't remember. And, you know, they would have this whole pack with a, uh, you know a tourist guide uh, to the city they would have um you know the, the places to eat and drink that were linked to this the socialist movement often uh, uh delegates would stay with other host delegates socialist comrades etc so you know it, it's this remarkable thing isn't it that you know it, it's um it really is a shame that we, we really are just scratching the surface of it and that's not to do down the kind of work that you and i do which is the resolutions the politics the factions etc but it, it, it was just, as you say this enormous movement that the that, that, that exerted such a pressure on society in a, in in a positive and a negative sense from the standpoint of the the capitalists. Um, maybe uh, you know, looking at the ruling class response, the question of war, the question of militarism uh, and and nationalism as as one way of countering that, uh, um, it's clearly a central theme. You know, at even a cursory look at your at your book under the socialist banner, war is a you know is constantly. Uh, uh, raised in the resolutions and addressed in the resolutions in different in different ways. Um, I, I had a, a question from Comrade Jason in the US who said uh, perhaps you could shed some light on the anti-war actions organized by the SI before 1914 and that might be worth uh, talking about briefly because you have these resolutions clearly but that, that also, th- th- it wasn't restricted to just passing resolutions, there were also actions taken
1: um, Well there were You know, the the years I would really the decade before the First World War there were you know a number of these uh, 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 crises that you know had the potential to lead to wider conflicts. Yeah. Um, You know the uh, I think one of the uh, you know. In uh, 1905, 1906, the first the first Morocco crisis,
0: yeah, yeah, you
1: know, which had the possibility of uh, the potential of leading to a war between France and Germany, yeah. Um, and one of the things that the uh, uh, second, actually, this came about through a collabor uh, collaboration between the SPD and the uh, and the French, you know, the French party, where, where they you know organized. Uh, um, anti, you know, anti, anti-war uh, activities together. They joined meet meetings that you know they would invite, um, you know, the other party to attend. Um, they, they were also the uh, around the other events and particularly around the Balkan wars and the uh, you know, you know, 1910, 1912. You know the. Where there were a number of peace demonstrations that were held throughout throughout Europe, and in, in, in fact the the, the Basel Congress of 1912 was basically a big, a, a, a sort of a world dem, a worldwide demonstra- demonstration that sort of had that character, um, with uh, you know march, uh, big parades and, and uh, you know a, a peace demonstrations and so forth. You know, likewise in 1914 in July 1914, where the, um, you know, uh, the eve of the First World War, there were, you know, big peace demonstrations throughout Europe, involving probably hundreds of thousands of people. Um, you know, although, you know, I think, um, you, know, you know, one thing about the, a lot of, some of these peace demonstrations um, could be uh, criticized in retrospect as not Um, focusing their attention on the war aims of their own governments. Um, I mean, it's-
0: Interesting, yeah.
1: um, uh, So that's, but in any case, the, I mean, the Second Internationals. it's the uh, resolutions on war and militarism that passed in 1907, 1910, 1912, are some of the strongest and best resolutions that the Second International had. The 1907 resolution. The the strongest parts of it were added due to amendments by Rosa Luxemburg, Lenin, and Martov. That's right. Uh, And that the the, uh, decisive parts of those resolutions were simply repeated verbatim in the resolutions of 1910 and 1912. Um, But at the same, there's there's another side. um, You know, and yes, there's some very strong points, but there were also some some weak. Sides to it, which actually you see more of it in the, not so much in the resolutions, but in and some of the debates and the justifications used. There, um, the uh, you know the the, enf- the emphasis on uh, national defense, which, which I think came out of the, uh, you know, during the era of the bourgeois revolutions in Europe, it was actually fairly easy to distinguish between you know, national wars that were taking place, whether it was Italy or wherever, and dynastic wars of conquest. And you, you actually had, it, it was, it was pretty, ex, pretty easy to distinguish the two, and they were real things. And these were things that Marx and Engels talked about and, and so forth. And um, with, with the rise of imperialism you know, around the turn of the century, that begins to change it. There, the the uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the these the, um, the the possibilities for national wars and national defense takes on a different character, and you, you see that there's a lot of um, of the uh, arguments that are used on these things, which consequently became used in following 1914 um by the uh the chauvinists the social chauvinists to oh well, we always you know we always talked about national defense and they, they would use some of the same some of the same arguments so that that was that was certainly one weakness and then there were also other the the allusions and the uh the, the peace sentiments of one's of one's own government illusions uh, allusions and you know, even though the, the second international resolutions, um, you know, advocated disarmament uh, and uh, uh, arbitration of international disputes, but it's clear there were a lot of illusions that arose about the, the possibility of, of that, which, you know, Rosa Luxemburg and Roddick and others, you know, pointed to the utopian uh, n- uh, nature of them. But, but But it's easy to, when you see what some of these, uh, you know, the the different sides to what you see, some of the things that also uh, led up to, you know, contributed to, you know, to what happened in 1914.
0: That's right. It's uh, it's it's an interesting, one. and in terms of the arbitration as well, I think by that point we have, uh, you know, at those like Kautsky and the leadership really showing, you know, you really start to see the uh, the weakness of the, what had been the leadership up until then as well. There, as you say, these uh, these illusions and and things, and maybe in terms of the the actions as well. I think you you mentioned the Basel Congress, but I think. My understanding generally is that pretty much each and every congress, maybe certainly certainly from the 1900s, you know from the nineteen, would be some form of anti-war. There would always be a demonstration and rallies afterwards as well, etc. So I think you know there there was uh, there was that aspect to it to it too, and yeah, the Basel Congress—that's the tragedy of it. Was you know it it was. it was built and the whole thing was built around this idea that we have a huge uh, demonstration of uh, of anti-war sentiment and um yeah that's the, the that's one of the frustrating things then uh, uh lo- looking back and you know how the, the second international collapsed precisely on that question that it had as you said taken so seriously and had written much about and you know the particularly the amendment by of Luxemburg and Lenin is one of the ones you know when you talk about taking the best of the second international and and holding up uh, these things in the face of those of the betrayed it. That's one of the most quoted things in Luxembourg and Lenin. Uh, in, I'm not sure about Martel, but certainly Luxembourg and Lenin, they they're always raising that on the uh, subsequently. Um, may, maybe at this point it'd be worth, th- this is more kind of open-ended exploration, but uh, reading the rereading your introduction a few days ago, um, maybe th- some things that we may have slight differences on, or maybe it's just that some, often it's just a case of language and we, we may be uh, missing de- uh, saying things in, in slightly different ways. Um, You talk about the idea of the three wings of inter- international social democracy um, and the problem of centrism. And this is one thing that I'm still not, I don't have my mind made up on at all. I'm, I'm currently looking at the, um, the, the the set the centrist debate so-called centrist debates in 1910 in the german party so you have for example um again just to give a bit of background to listeners the the, the, the fundamental idea and, and broadly correct idea schematic but i think it's broadly correct is that you know you have the the international revolutionary uh, kind of left of the of social democracy lenin luxembourg setkin others you have the center what comes to be the centre around, say, Hilferding and, uh, uh, and and Kautsky in particular, and Babel to, to the, you know, and then you have the the right wing and, and the opportunist Bernstein, all sorts of people, and again that's very much through the prism of the German Party. But looking, at, you know, it's clear to me that in terms of my one of the things I think that that's come out of the the more recent research since Lars Lee and others. Is that you know Lenin and, and the and the Bolsheviks are clearly are a product of what was initially the center of social democracy, right? So the we talk about Kautsky, they were against the reformists, the opportunists, but they were also against kind of the general strikers or the anarchists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and then in in the run up to the uh, the German Party Congress of 1910, this is the first time I think when there's a split in that in that radical camp between what becomes known as the left uh, Luxembourg uh, and her allies. And, and Kautsky. And it seems to me that it, it, the tricky thing about this, again, the, the, the three schools thing is just a, a schema, right? It's just a way of getting into these discussions. But it, it sometimes, to me, misses some of the complexity of the discussions. Because if you actually look at the um, the 1910 mass strike the discussion and the 1910 question in the German party about what to do about these deputies that against the, uh, the resolutions of the party and the international have gone and voted for a state budget, a capitalist state budget. How do you respond? Broadly speaking, even though they're, they're at loggerheads and that this discussion, there's, there's a big disagreement of the, 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 the mass strike question. Um, Luxembourg and Kautsky pretty much say the same thing when it comes to the right. And it's 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 one of these things that um you know is, is is taxing me at the moment. How how do you see it, Mike? How do you see these things play out? Do you when would you say that the a centrist wing emerges in the international broadly speaking? Did you have some kind of idea or, or a sense of can you see that in the resolutions and the debates where it becomes a bit more of okay revolutionary in in word but not indeed? Did you do you have a, a an impression of that?
1: Um. Well, I, I don't think that they were um, sort of consolidated, uh, fully yeah. consolidated current, certainly. Um, probably in it, it, the SPD was probably, you know, was probably more so than in other parties. Mm. Although there, as you point out, it's it's not, there are areas, uh, there are, um uh, there are gray areas uh, in trying that, that you, you can't simply say you know you three distinct uh three distinct Absolutely. currents um you know you ha- i mean as we know lenin saw two two currents of, yeah. uh, up until um really probably um till 1914. um yeah. the um uh, i think luxembourg had you know was you know based on her of what she saw was um uh, probably a little more nuanced mm. um, but but you i i think it's um so i so it, it's certainly not you know sharp uh sharp tendencies or or currents or factions mm. uh, although and, and although certainly the right wing was yeah but, yeah um, the uh um, but, you know, but you had the, you know, the, you know, the left, the actual, the left in some way, you know, you had the beginnings of the, you know, the left, the, the left currents and even though they didn't call themselves that, you know, between the Bolsheviks and the Tesniaki and Bulgaria and mm. uh, the Tribune group and the Netherlands and, um, uh, but but I think part of it relates to sort of how um, how sharply you um, you respond to the right to the opportunist the right wing threat. I, mm-hmm. I think that so 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 I, I think that you know if you look at you can actually see uh, in different ways in some of the uh dip you begin you, you see sort of that uh, the sort of the two currents and then then develop within the the so-called Marx the marxist wing of the second international you begin to see even though not clearly you know the d- differentiations and uh how they uh dealt with certain questions whether you know on the you see it a little bit on the, on the war question uh, and the militarism debate where, where at um, uh, the 1910 Congress in, in Copenhagen, uh, where Le- Le Boer, um, uh you know, is the reporter on the militarism thing and a, a, a you know, a, a Marxist, you know, left, left winger within the SPD. And, you know, in the discussion, he's, you know, he's, you uh, he's, you know, others like Ronick and others are uh, responding to, to sort of his the sort of the, to some of the of the, way, the allusions that he, he presents on the uh, you know on the arbitration question on the disarmament uh, uh, um, uh, question and so forth. So. So, but but then again, it doesn't re- it doesn't really become fully uh, consolidated until after 1914, when um, you know you have those uh, where the, the the actual the centri- centrism emerges as basi- they, the basically to give cover to the and uh, injustific- you know uh, backhanded justifications for the, uh, the the social chauvinist line
0: no i i, I agree with that i think 1914 is the key day i think in terms of the the Len, lenin's assessment of uh the, of the centrists i mean it's a paradox because i think on on the one hand luxembourg in 1910 is clearly wrong about the her assessment of the situation and, and in terms of the uh, in the, the mass strike etc at the time and the bolsheviks kind of all uh, and many in the russian movement kind of go along with that and, and go with kautsky and Hilferding. Um, but at the same time, she's she, as you say, she's highlighting something important. I think where she's saying actually Kautsky is, even though he's making you know formally correct points, there are some small concessions here. And I think Lenin, I think it's in 1912 for the first time where I think Kautsky's response to Panakirk on the mass strike, and uh, sorry, yeah, Kautsky's response to Panakirk and Lenin says no, this is opportunism, right? Um, and I think this this is one of the, the the strange things because what happens in 1914 is that. Um, all these things come to a head, as you say, and, and, it's not just it's not just the split within the the radical camp. It's some of the left wing go over to the far right, literally the, the hard right of the SPD. And then some, you know, even the, some of the traditionally more rightist become a more centrist approach. Like Bernstein, for example, becomes you know to his credit in that sense, he's he's a pacifist in the, in the First World War, which is not where a lot of his allies ended up, right? So it's it's a very as I say, it's a schematic way of looking at these three these three things. That it's, it's it's as you say, it's not set in stone. It's very complicated because again, it's real life. It's people responding to concrete situations, making their own uh, uh, um, judgments. But I do think that the um, why it's important for me to it's something I'm working on at the moment is that the idea of centrism is very important in uh, Stalinist historiography. Uh, I'm talking concretely here about the GDR. And GDR historiography basically says, OK, you have this centrism in 1914, which, as I say, I agree with you on this, provides cover for the warmongers. But actually, it goes back to 1906. And for me, that's again, this this kind of uh, problem of, of of projecting backwards. Right. But again, when we talk about the center, because it, it, it's, it's, it's sometimes it's just terminology, but I think that it's it's also important to see uh um you know the 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 revolutionary nature of the center of social democracy in many ways but obviously uh the the role it comes to play in 1914 is a completely different one and i think that's you know i I think we would both uh, agree on that you talk about the gap between word and deed as well or and the call for a lack of clear perspective on revolutionary action to bring about socialism so clearly this is uh something important as well that you've located so you have these resolutions they're not put into effect. Is that what you mean by that, or is it is it more a more fundamental um, uh, approach of saying, well, okay, there was this principled rejection of bourgeois coalitionism, which is a great thing, but there wasn't really a clear uh, um, strategy to take power. Does is is that broadly what what do you mean by that by that statement in the introduction?
1: Um, well, in 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 one way, it's sort of helpful to. Um... Look, take the actually take a look at a, a, some of some individual countries. Um, that I, I think that in a lot of places, the uh, revolutionary minded workers and youth um saw uh, the reality that the the parties in these countries, less so the, the, S, the SPD in Germany, but in a lot of other countries were um. Really over reliance on uh, on parliamentary action and, and so forth, and um, and you saw and concept- what happened was that a lot of the um, a lot of these uh, militants turned to the syndicalist forces. I know this was the case in the, uh, the United States, where the yeah. Where, where, the, you know, where, the, where militants were primarily John, you know, who wanted action, were drawn to the IWW more so than to the uh, Socialist Party. Um, or else they, they may have had membership cards in both the SP and the IWW, but their hearts we <laughs> were, you know, <laughs> the wobblies. Yeah, um, yeah. I think, I think something you saw something, you know, the, basically the same thing in France with the growth of EGT. Yeah. You saw, saw the same thing in Spain with the growth of the CNT, Italy. You know, the, you know. The, and, I, and so I, I think that the the growth of syndicalism, um, to a large extent, in you know, uh, in years both before 1914 and certainly after 1914. Yeah. yeah. Um, were were to a large extent, you know, the um, the fact that a, a number of the, these parties, the uh, you know, even though they may have been sort of revolutionary in, uh, in aspects of their program, uh, in, in terms of their day-to-day practice, had, you know, there was sort of less and less to do with that. And, and the, the SPD was a little different because the, a lot of these parties actually the, the sort of the leadership uh, um, uh, revolved or, uh, was sort of to, to an extent was in the hands of of some of these. Uh, Right wing forces, or those who um, you know, who leaned on the right wing forces, the SPD less so because you you know the, it's Marxist tradition, the role of Babel Zinger, um, you know, and other um, you know historic leaders of the uh, you know of the movement. Um, so so I, I so in in terms of the uh, of of the uh, the. The gap of having a, you know, a revolutionary, uh, the revolutionary program, and making, you know, uh, you know, just you know, adopting, uh, Marxist, you know, Marxist resolutions and so forth, and not not having any uh, realistic strategy of how how that's going to be implemented or put into practice, and and yet, um, that 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 I think is a um, you know I, mean, I think that's a, that's a real um, point of view and, and I think that above all else was what uh, Lenin and Luxembourg and, and others uh, after 1914 uh, their um, uh, when they turned their back on the uh, you know on the Second International. Uh, it was, that was what they pointed to. Um, and of course that was what, when the communist international was founded in 1919, that was, you know, it would openly stated is that its goal was to, that we're going to be the party of the deed, the world party of the
0: deed. Um, so, um, uh, there's a whole, it it goes probably beyond the scope of this discussion now, but there's a whole number of questions there on that, because I think that one of the, um, uh, one of the important things, so you, I, I think you usefully draw a distinction between, kind of, say, Spain, Italy, syndicalism, and the German model. The German model is different, and I think that's it's even more uh, tragic as a result, because I think what you maybe had in Germany was, as you say, that strong partyist mode, the the, the question of patience, so that you know y- y- you would have your revolutionary opposition, and then when the the the, the big Uh, chance came when the big crisis came that's when the party would be in a position to step up and do its duty right and i think that when it came to 1914 (laughs) you know the 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 crisis that the the clad as it was called right that had been coming for so long the party recoils from that for whatever reasons i think that's um uh that, that that's that, that's the tragedy of it i think in spain and italy it's it's more perhaps again i i'm not an expert on these these countries and these movements but maybe it's more an expression of impatience you know with the with the strategy you know because it was constantly leveled at, uh um at the 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 marxist strategy of the second international that was to uh, uh um uh Reticent, it was holding back too much, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So maybe maybe that fits feeds in, in into that as well. And you know, that's also what people like James Joel say, for example, about the Second International. Right? It was just this; they were just wait passively, waiting, attentism, all this stuff. And I think that. You know, that actually does uh, a slight disservice to the real revolutionary nature of the second international. But the thing is, when when push comes to came to shove, what what had been predicted uh, as as the strategy, what they'd always said, they reneged upon. And that's the real the real tragedy, I think, in it. that was to me, that's that is the real gap, if you like, between word and deed, because everything was premised upon. Uh, as, not everything, but you know, the, the, a lot of the resolutions were centered upon the war the, the threat of war and the crisis it would bring, and how that crisis had to be utilized to bring in a new form of society, etc. And when it came, uh, it was it was it was dumped. Um, yeah, and, and
1: and I should point out also yeah. related to that is, you know, um, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the point of the Stuttgart res- uh, militarism resolution about using the war crisis to uh, bring about the, the basically the, the overthrow of the bourgeoisie. Yeah. You know, that gets repeated in you know in every resolution, and it, it gets you know the interesting thing it gets vote. It's that resolution is approved unanimously. That is the, and it gets approved you you know unanimously in every Congress, including you know by the right wingers who have they have no intention of you know who disagree Actually, you know, who totally yeah. disagree. But it, it's sort of an indication of the sort of the I mean, the word "deed" uh, uh, division
0: hypocrisy, if you will, a certain way. That's right. That's right. And presumably, for the right as well, that would they would be going along with that because it would be kind of sacrilege if they didn't, right? If If they if they voted against that kind of common sense, it would be it would put them out on a you know, it would put them beyond the pale in a certain way, right? And, um, yeah, and and, and again, th- these are huge questions, but maybe this whole thing then relates to, you know, I don't agree with everything that Luxembourg later wrote about the SPD, but, you know, this idea of uh, socialism becoming a distant guiding star you know, that's something that was talked about on a Sunday, but didn't find reflection in, you know, the Rep- Republican agitation and propaganda and all the rest of it, the fallout. Like, I think, you know, they, get, but again, these are huge questions beyond the scope of, of today, but they clearly are related. And, you know, this 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 would indeed gap. And I think we we actually see these questions actually quite in, in quite similar terms. um in terms of, I mean, we, we've gone on for quite some time, um, maybe we'll skip, over. we've talked about the, the relations with the parties, just maybe um, a question which I think is important. we have got this, uh, again, one of my favourite uh, uh, resolu- quotes from the resolutions, the, the emancipation of labour and humanity cannot occur without the international action of the proletariat, organising class-based parties, which seizes political power through the expropriation of the capitalist class and the social appropriation of the means of production. Good stuff. You know, you look back and you think, well, you know, what's wrong with that? I could, <laughs> we could sign up to that. Um, the, uh, but this question, again, you talked about the moral authority of the SI and the, and, and the uh, uh, of the ISB, sorry, in, in coordinating the Second International. Because um, obviously you've got that the, the lofty aim there of organizing these international uh, parties. I have a question from our comrade and friend, Lawrence Parker. Um, it, we talked about what power the SI had over its parties and militants, both in the literal and broadest sense. You're saying it's one largely of moral authority, which shouldn't be sniffed at because actually uh, it was an th- authority that guided a lot of the parties. It brought a lot of the parties together as parties, overcame the divisions, et cetera. Um, and I suppose this relates to, his question relates to the experience of the second and the third international in this question, and the first, as you said, which had an international executive, are international organizations of the proletariat? I assume he assumes that exert a soft ideological power as opposed to a binding one, useful or useless, or maybe somewhere in between. What What are your thoughts on that? Because again, it it kind of ties up our discussion, doesn't it, about the first, second, and third internationals today?
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, it's a. Uh, I mean, certainly, there's no easy answers to. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, to that question, they, I mean, obviously, the I the ISB had you know it was, it was basically you know moral moral authority entirely entirely. It had yes. no authority that that or any Congress really could um, have over the conduct of members, even uh, or you know, various parties. Uh, it was never uh, I, in the, this 25-year history of the Second International actually being. The only expulsions that I know of was when they kicked out the anarchists um, yeah. in the eighteen, you know, in the eighteen nineties. Um, but no, no other uh, forces were uh, uh, were excluded. Um, uh, so, okay. So, and it had this this moral authority, and it, it played a role. And it, um, you know, at the same time, you saw the limits of of uh, of what what it could be done? There, there was really no way of reining in the uh, opportunist wing of the of the international.
0: Um, or, or, or only in only on a national basis, right? Oh, so it's, exactly, exactly. Like, so
1: the SPD would try, you know, would try exactly. to do So at its at its congresses, um, but it. Um, so but but but. I, but I, basically, I don't think any other part, other than the SPD, I don't think there's, um, you know, other well,
0: Wasn't I think Milleron was kicked out of the French party, wasn't he? But again, it not from not on the basis of the ISB res as far as I know, ISB resolutions or anything like that is. Is that right? I think
1: I, the te- the, I'm not sure, but yeah, that,
0: yeah, I'd have to look I'd it up as well. I'm not, um,
1: but certainly he he was going in and he's like
0: totally they open know, the door politely for him yeah that's right yeah good riddance, good riddance,
1: yeah. Good riddance to uh, to this
0: um,
1: the uh so so that's that's what you saw especially when push came to shove at, uh, as 1914 approached and there was no um you know vehicle to to, to rein in you you, you saw the, the limits of it um you know at the, at the same time it you know it this 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 gets into the question of of uh, centralism and the communist yeah. Interna- and the third international yeah. centralism, or you know, ultimately super centralism. Mm. And, which, which
0: assumes kind of, you know, absurd forms today in the far left, right, where you have a, a group in London that, you know, then tells, that gives a, a, a tightly defined line for a group in Sri Lanka or, you know, and then that, that, that's, the, it's kind of this hyper centralism, isn't it? And, uh,
1: yeah, but I, but, I, but I think it's important. To, I, I know because uh, I know John Riddell and I have, uh, you know, uh, have talked in... You know, gone over this question, you know, a lot in terms of the role yeah. of you know, centralism in the Communist International, and you know, and the point is to uh, to recognize that 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 there was a so even even there there was there was a real evolution, you know,
0: yeah. Yeah. In that,
1: um, you know that and that um, that dis- that that uh, contrary to how it's usually uh, presented that, you know, e- even despite any exceptions or any possible abuses, they, when the, um, the you know, even though the the called for international centralism, there was generally actually very little interference in, in leadership selection or activity in the various parties. Yeah, there were yeah. a lot of calls that were made for what a party should be doing, but relatively few and far between instructions. Um, so you know, even even the um, you know the famous twenty one conditions for admission to yeah. the common term was primarily written as guidance, not not as orders.
0: until It that's really right.
1: wasn't until uh, Bolshevization in nineteen twenty four and subsequently that that began to change significantly. And,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And, and in the next uh, in the years after that, virtually every party had its leadership overturned from you know from Moscow.
0: No, uh, I, I, that's not, sorry, to, to interrupt. Go on. Yeah. No. No, no, I th- I think that's re- that's a really important point. And I say it, it 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 assumes absurd forms today, where you know you get a group somewhere, then expelling people there, left, right, and center for X, Y, Z in another country, and I think that the you know the the um we could i think with the the way we the way i would look at it is that soft power actually is very important because it seems to me from my reading of the second international going back to where we started actually in this discussion and the uh, the, the power that bolshevism exerted in the early days of the communist international was largely a moral or um, kind of standard bearer, you know, one of conviction, one that would convince people, oh, these people know what they do, and look at the quality of the resolutions, look what they're saying, we should take that seriously. And it, w- it wouldn't be then that the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the the common term would kind of back off when it came to, say, German party matters, there would be open letters, there would be articles, there would be polemics, etc. but people would take that seriously because this was an organization that led a revolution which has opened up, all sorts of potential for europe do you see what i mean i think that's also true in the in the early second international as well where you have to a certain extent the soft ideological power of people like engels those involved in the spd that are setting up this organization and you know they, they wouldn't necessarily be saying this is exactly what we do this is you know th- this is the lever we pull here and do that but they would have a as a, you know a soft ideological power in shaping you know relations in the russian party or um, disputes in the English part in the British party over X, Y, Z. D- does that make sense? I think there is, there is, you know,
1: yeah, well, I, I think, um, there's a, uh, you know, a real, I think a good example of what you say, um, mm. in the history, in the, certainly in the early years of the second international, which, you know, as you referred to earlier, the, mm. when the second international was founded in 1889. There was a, a competing Congress with the yeah, the yeah. Refugees, uh, that took place. Um, and they're basically the same size, but, um, but, very, but they basically the Second International because of its, the clarity of its resolutions, the authority, the greater representation, it, it won the day. Um, and within a year or so, all, virtually all of the, uh, the possibleist forces wound up joining the Second International and they were present at the 1891, at the next Congress of the thing. The, the the point that what, what's what's interesting to think about is okay you had these reformist forces within the Second International but it really it wasn't until uh, 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 Bernstein uh, Bernstein raises the you know his the evolutionary socialism in 1897 uh, that that the the Marxist character of the International is challenged so in other words for what six, seven years after these forces are in the international, the, the authority of the of the international and its leadership uh, were such that its uh, its programmatic basis is is not is not challenged by even those people who, who we know uh, didn't share it.
0: No, that's what that's absolutely right. And that's that's also the period where it really takes off as well. And new parties are being formed and joining and all the rest of it. I think that's really important. But again, maybe on the other side, as you already alluded to just a second ago, is that they, it did also involve the only expulsions you know of those early days of the anarchists so it did, there was the kind of hard power as well for, at least at the basis of the congresses but again we should probably be clear on this as well is that it got to the point where it was just ridiculous i mean you've read the proceedings of the the anarchists turning up and it threatened to you know stop the congress and it it just dragged on sometimes for days isn't it i mean do do, do, uh, do, do you have any uh, anecdotes to share with us about that i just remember reading some of the the chaos that that, that that ensued in in the early, I think it was the 1891 Congress in particular was, uh, I think it was stopped for hours, wasn't it, or something. uh...
1: 1891, 1893, 1896, getting up on chairs and all (laughs) kinds of stuff.
0: Um, Exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's sort of, I mean, uh, you know, I I think one of the things that uh, that, uh, it actually sort of does if you look at the history of the Second International, you can see it almost, you can almost divide it in half that the first three Congresses, uh, actually the first four Congresses are in many ways, there could be seen as simply a a continuation of the First International. And a lot of the debates um, are similar to in, in many ways, to some of the debates in the First International, and the tone of it is is, is, is similar. Um, and of course, in the you know the First International was uh, largely destroyed through the uh, uh, you know the anarchist wing under Bakunin. And but then at from 1900, you begin to see a whole uh, these other questions associated with the rise of world of imperialism. Um, you know, you know, uh, th- there may have maybe similar questions had been raised earlier, but they get raised in a different way after 1900. So, it in some ways, they, the the post 1900 Congresses seem more um, for for a reader today who lives in still lives in a way that, in a, a world shaped by imperialism. These the the post 1900 congresses seem a little more familiar than the
0: other ones do. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: You know, so it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting uh, fact that I found.
0: I, mean, no, I never thought that like that, but that's no, really interesting. Mike, we've spoken quite a lot and I, I'm, I'm conscious of taking up your time. Maybe just one final question. I wanted to talk about your uh your other new book as well, which will be published in the autumn uh, with Daria Diakonova. Diakonova? Diakonova, yeah. The Akronova, uh The Communist Women's Movement, 1920 to 1922. Proceedings, resolutions and reports. So not only have you been looking at the Third International, Second International, now the Third International Women's Movement, short-lived, only two, uh, th- two or three years. Um, could you just give us a, a, a little impression of that work and what you've, what you've gleaned from that? And is there anything um, interesting that comes out there in terms of how these... Uh, women were looking back on their experience of the second international because um, I was thinking the other day, one of the I suppose one of the rare instances of a leader of both the Second International and the Third International uh, uh, is actually Kara Zetkin, right? If you, I, I was thinking uh-huh. of others, but she is clearly the key woman who was involved in both, and she had criticisms of both movements. So, for example, she once said that the um, and this is this was in the time of when she was in the Third International. Looking back, she said that the Socialist Women's International sometimes we were treated as kind of uh, domestic help or domestic servants in the in the in our politics, but she was also very critical. Of um some of the response of comrades in the Third International, where she said you know, that comrades are not taking this our movement seriously enough and the significance of it. So, yeah, I mean, congratulations first of all on getting that book together as well, and we'll uh, I'll hopefully have you both on a podcast to discuss that in more detail. But yeah, just some impressions or, or flavors of uh, how how maybe this this piece fits into the, the the whole jigsaw, as it were. Well, it's
1: interesting. The, the Socialist Women's Movement, of course, that that. Edkin led in 1907 um, and you know as you say it was uh, viewed as a um, uh, the, the second international leadership basically sort of largely dismissed it and um, uh, you know gave it pretty short shrift um, it dismissed the, the movement it, it within the parties you know uh, women women members were largely uh, Dismissed their capabilities, uh, underestimated, undervalued, and so forth. And the, the socialist women's movement at Zetkin, they fought, you know, to to bring these issue the issue of women's emancipation to the parties, the mm-hmm. Second International, and to to advance these things. And they had quite a bit of success and, um, and a lasting impact. The creation of International Women's Day in 1910, um, uh, so forth. And then after 1914, the uh, socialist Zetkin and the socialist women's movement uh, plays a huge role in helping to um, re-establish collaboration by left-wing forces. Um, as a matter of fact, the first um, international conference uh, after after the collapse of 1914 was the. Uh, the Burnett con- uh, conference of women's conference in
0: 1915.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And, and, and then it, it went on It played a, you know, a role in the founding, you know, Zetkin and others, um, role in the um, founding of the communist international. The communist women's movement is, you know, which the the, the book that will be published this fall um, is one of, is a chapter in history that very, very few people know about. Uh, and it's, uh, it needs to be brought to brought to the attention, and and, and this book, I, I mean, there's a lot of you know, really wonderful things in it, which, as you say, will, are worthy of a separate podcast. The one thing I will say is, uh, in, in relation to your question, is the, the in terms of the lines of continuity and similarity between the socialist women's movement and the communist women's movement. Um, uh, uh, the um, the um, uh, you know, and you you actually see at some of the um, uh, con- uh, conferences of the con- the communist women's movement some of a lot of the same types of things that had come up in the socialist women movements. Complaints about how uh, the the parties of the Third International uh, are, underestimate, you know, or uh, have a don't fully appreciate the the value of of um, you know, of the of, of women's emancipation, women's liberation, women's emancipation, the underestimation of uh, women cadres in the movement, and so forth. So, you see a lot of that. The, the difference that uh, one, one, I, one of the key differences that you see, though, is that unlike in the uh, Second International, within the Third International, the, uh, the women's, the communist women's movement had the support and backing of. Key leaders of the uh, of the movement of Lenin, Trotsky, Zinoviev, uh, and others, who who would push it, and even though you know there, there was resistance on the part of a number of parties and within the common you know, the common leader, common itself, uh, how progress was being you know important progress was being made at strengthening the movement and organize and. Uh, and uh, having it become part of the, a, a key part of the, the various parties. So um, it, it's an interest in, it's an interesting, and, and of course, the fact that you had Zetkin and you know, who was you know, a key leader of both, and basically, um, if you read some of her speeches, her speech in 1907, and in many ways, is very similar to her what she presented in 19, uh, 1921.
0: Fascinating, yeah. That, that's that, that's really because again it, it it kind of in a sense ties up what we've been talking about you know the the, the best elements of the of the second international the best politics of the regime, you know uh, uh, being carried forth in into the third literally in this sense and I think the the women's movement really is one of the as you, as you pointed out with the struggle against the uh, uh against the first world war uh, and organizing the, 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 the international women it's one of the things that that kept the kept the banner high didn't it you know it's uh, and i know that you know, certain workers organizations did as well but it was really that that was the really one instance i think maybe the only instance of where an international you know official international organization you know uh, went through and carried on and became a a, 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 an organization of the third international too so that's that's a fascinating bit of uh, of history and it's good that you've done really good that you've dug it up and um yeah i i also like the 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 point you just made now about 1907 and 1920 21 the speech and the, the continuity in in zetkin's ideas i think she says at some point in the when in the debates about the russian revolution she says well you know this is this is what i've lived for my entire life you know to see and, and that's what i'll fight for and that became problematic later on perhaps but um no really really looking forward to uh reading that book and I say i'll definitely have you maybe have you both on to discuss that and the, and the implications of it but um no, at this juncture Mike I'd like to say thank you very much for your time it's, I've taken a lot of your time so really appreciate it and um just to say to listeners make sure you get hold of a copy of under the socialist banner resolutions of the second international and your uh, the discussions Mike when you are saying you're hoping that's maybe out next year the the, the, uh, well, the, uh, the uh, book on the uh, debates in the second uh, international
1: yeah debates in the second international well, you know you know hopefully hopefully uh, It'll be out. Hopefully we'll have
0: it soon. We look forward to it and we'll probably discuss that as well. we'll I think we'll
1: hopefully next year.
0: Brilliant. No, that sounds wonderful. And congratulations and keep up the good work.
1: Thank you.